0: All right, as you're having a seat, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. We're going to be back in the Sermon on the Mount again for a few minutes this morning. Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 19. Uh, But let me tell you a story first. Uh, Several years ago, I was on an international flight, and uh, I was coming home to the United States, and I had to go through London and do a transfer. And I was actually transferring from Gatwick Airport to Heathrow Airport. And the airline had booked me way too tight. I mean, it was physically impossible for me to get off my plane, get my bag, get a cab over to the other airport, and make my flight. And so, lo and behold, I missed the flight, right? But the airline stepped up, and they put me in a nice hotel that evening. Next morning, I arrived at the airport. I was given my seat assignment, and lo and behold, I was bumped up. To business class and I was like oh man I you know I went in and I got not just my seat but really my bed right it was just it was amazing first last only time I've ever actually flown business class but as I reclined I thought this is what I was made for. God, God designed me to be in business class or first class or whatever, right? You know, because back in, that, in the day, uh, you know, the common people, you, you had to watch the movie that everybody watched on the screen. But, you know, back in the day, only if you were in business class or first class, I got to pick my own movie. I, I could ask for food at any time I wanted it and all the drink that I wanted at any point in time. And I, I got to lean back and basically had a bed and slept the whole thing. Oh, this is awesome. I love this. So, you know, next flight I got on, I checked, what would it cost to upgrade? Never mind. But, but I wonder for you, if you were ever invited to move up to first class or stay with the common people in coach, what would you do? Of course, you, you, you'd be insane, right? We were, we were made for first class, all of us. We were made for that, right? We, there's something in us. We long for the best. And that's natural. We long for the best that life has to offer. And in fact, God wants the best that life has to offer for us. Sermon on the Mount actually begins that way. Jesus says, blessed are those who, that is blessed, happy, fulfilled, getting the most out of life are those who do the following things, who have the following attitudes and the following practices. In other words, Jesus wants what is absolutely best for us. He just wants us to have the best in the right way and at the right time. Right? The same applies to wealth. God wants us to be wealthy. He just wants us to be wealthy in the right way at the right time. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, 11 times Jesus talks about reward or treasure. We want God's best, including wealth. God wants us to have his best, in, including wealth, but at the right time and in the right way. And so in the Sermon on the Mount and really throughout the Gospels, Jesus gives a lot of instruction on wealth. In fact, one out of three parables that Jesus told was about wealth. So we're going to read together some of Jesus' wisdom on wealth, beginning in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust corrupt, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus says this first, wealth is a window to your soul. It's not the only window to your soul, but it is one of the most revealing windows to your soul. Your attitude toward wealth reveals what you truly love and what you truly value, what you truly trust in, what you truly believe will make life fulfilling and worthwhile. Several years ago, a man named David McKenna wrote a book on wealth. It's called Money, the Acid Test. And he said this, Money, most common of temporal things, involves uncommon and eternal consequences. Even though it may be done quite unconsciously, money molds men in the process of getting it, saving it, spending it, and giving it. Either the person becomes master of the money or the money becomes the master of the person. Our Lord takes money, as essential as it is to our common life, and makes it a touchstone to test our lives and an instrument to mold people into the likeness of himself. So this morning, actually, what we're going to talk about is not money but worship, Because money can be something that we worship or something that we use for worship. And in the process, it will mold us or change us, right? Worship is ascribing worth to something. Worship is saying, that thing is valuable. It is valuable to me. It's a source of joy and fulfillment and happiness. That is worship, ascribing worth. And whatever we worship will change us, in a sense, into its image. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says, uh, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, right beholding, worshiping, meditating upon the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that very same image, from glory into glory. That is, when we worship Jesus Christ, when we say we value him above all else, We believe that he is the source of joy and happiness and value and worth and we put him most high in our thoughts and our our dreams and our imagination. We gradually become like Jesus when we worship him and we value his character, his personality and what he values. That shapes us, that molds us. Notice what uh, this man David McConaugh says about money the same way. It says money molds men in the process of getting it, saving it, spending it and giving it. That is, if we worship Jesus, we become molded into his image. If we worship something other than Jesus, including money, we will be molded into its image. It will change us for the worse. You notice what Jesus says here in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So I imagine some of you have read that verse many times and every time you go through it, you go, what? <laughs> There's some really confusing metaphors in there. So let me unpack this a little bit. Jesus says the eye, of the, lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body, meaning the, the eye is the thing through which we perceive and understand, we receive, but also it's what we use to fix our attention on something. And he says, if your eye is clear, literally, if your eye is single, that is, if what you fix your attention upon, your affections upon is single, that is Jesus, your whole body will be full of light. That is, your whole life will come into order. On the other hand, if your eye is bad, literally if your eye is evil, which is an idiomatic expression for greed. right? If your eye is set upon things, you say, I don't have it, but I must have it. Because that's where life is. Then he says... Your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is actually darkness, how great is that darkness? That is, if you are loving and longing for something other than Jesus, it will bring darkness into your life. It will change you. It will change you. Now, Jesus is not saying that wealth is bad, that having wealth or enjoying wealth is bad. What he's saying is loving wealth is destructive. What he's saying is, loving wealth is destructive. So, verse 24: No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You must divide your time. Right. Life on earth requires you to divide your time. You, you spend time uh, at your job, you spend time with family, you spend time worshiping, you spend time serving. You spend time in a variety of ways. You divide your time. That's required in life. But something must sit at the very top of your ladder of affections. There can't be two things. And so if you place job at the very top of your affections, then you will make decisions about how you worship and how you spend time with your family or not based upon your first love. That will be your highest priority and it will affect all the decisions you make about all the other ways that you spend your time and your money and your resources. And God has given us a hierarchy. He said, no, the hierarchy needs to be this. Your love of God, your love for your family and your friends, the people around you, and then your love for your work. Because if you love your work more than you love your family, you will cause your family to make sacrifices it shouldn't make. On the other hand, if you put family above God, you'll make choices for your family before you make choices for God. If you put God first and realize, no, family is not the highest priority in life. Love for God is, which I would argue Christians, evangelical church, we often put the family even, and we worship the family even above God. But that's not where it belongs. The family is a servant To God. And so we make decisions about our family based upon our love for God first. We make decisions about our job based upon our love for our family and our love for God. But if anything usurps our love for God, all of our life will become darker. Again, he's not saying wealth is bad, he's saying wealth or any other thing cannot usurp your love for God, or your life will suffer. So, Jesus says, don't treasure foolish treasures. Don't set your heart upon things that are not as valuable as God. Read with me again, chapter 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Remember in Jesus' day, there were no secure banks that you could put your wealth in, So you had to hide your wealth in your home, but homes were not secure. They were easily broken into. They're made of stone or bricks or mud. The doors were of wood. People could easily break into your home, so they could find your treasure. So you could bury your treasure out in the field, but it might get rained upon and become corrupted, or you might even lose track of it and forget where you had placed her. Somebody might watch where you buried it and they could go and dig it up and steal it, right? It, it's corruptible. That's what Jesus is saying. In fact, you know, this actually happened to my sister when we were kids. She and uh, she one of our our cousins decided that they pool all of their wealth and they put all their money, all their coins into a little box. And my cousin lived on the Puget Sound. They had uh, their, their house backed up and there was a beach. And so they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to bury our treasure and then we're going to go dig up our treasure. And so they put all of their money in this little steel box and they buried it and they marked it and they put a stick there on the beach so they know where it was. And they went back in an hour and the tide had come in and they couldn't find their treasure anywhere. It was gone foolish treasures. Solomon writes this in the book of Proverbs. He says, don't weary yourself. Don't, don't wear yourself out to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. Because when you set your eyes on it, it is gone for wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Solomon says, wealth has wings. It just disappears. You bury it and can't find it or it is corruptible or you put all of your money into the stock market and it takes a dip and it's gone. Just like that. Wealth has wings and even when wealth doesn't have wings, even when it sticks around, wealth is never enough. There's always within us this longing for more. I want you to turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 12, In verse 13, Luke chapter 12, Jesus uh, encounters a man who is struggling with greed. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. So someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me, which seems like a really reasonable request, right? Jesus, can can you tell this man to do what's right? I should receive a portion of the inheritance. But Jesus said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? But then he said to him, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. In other words, uh, Jesus knows that the man isn't just asking for the division of the inheritance, but what the man is struggling with is greed. And you can write this in your margin. Remember, the Greek word for greed means to have more. Literally, to have more. Greed is being discontent. Greed is the opposite of contentment. Contentment says, what I have today is enough. It's enough for me to have a joyful life today. It's enough for me to be satisfied today. Today, what I have is enough for me to share, for me to give of myself. I I can be content. Greed is is the exact opposite. What I have today, whether it's wealth or possessions or relationships, it's not enough. I have to have more. Jesus says the problem in this man's heart is that he has to have more. What God has given him is not enough. Don't treasure foolish treasures because the wealth that you have will never, in fact, be enough. Anybody here? Uh, oh, I have a quote for you. Let me give you this quote first. Oh, this Sir Frederick, Frederick Catherwood once said, greed is the logical result of the belief that there is no life after death. That greed is the logical Result of belief that there is no life after death. I have death. I have to have more now because I'm not anticipating getting more later. Right? Anybody in here believe in life after death? Go ahead, be courageous. Anybody? Okay, good. I guess. Just hoping for a little more enthusiasm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anybody in here ever wrestle with greed? anybody ever in here ever wrestle with honesty? <laughs> yeah, uh huh. because I, yeah, I saw, I saw some hands stay down. You can't tell me there hasn't been a time when you said, I need more today of whatever. That's greed. I don't have enough today. My life isn't all that it should be today, and so I'm demanding more, right? So Greed is the logical result of belief that there is no life after death. In our minds, we say, of course there's life after death. We're in a Bible church. We raise our hands. And, you know, if not in worship, at least we can, for an idea, we'll raise our hands and say, I believe that. In our minds, but not in our our hearts often. And our hearts say, I've got to have more. So notice how Jesus exposes the man's heart with this parable. He says, there was the land of a rich man and it was very, very productive. So the man began reasoning, saying to himself, what shall I do since I have no place to store all my crops? Man, I'm just, I'm so wealthy. And he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns, I will build larger ones, and there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And then I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Then I can be content. Right? Would he then be content? No, he wouldn't because he has a greedy heart. He would get to that point and he would not be content. He would, in fact, long for more. How much more? Well, there was an interesting survey done a few years ago uh, among Americans, and this is what the, the data showed. It showed for people who are living at a fairly, fairly low level of income, about $25,000, it's a pretty low level of income in the U.S., they were asked, how much would you need to experience the American dream? And the response on average was that they would need $54,000. Right? They're at 25000 but if they had 54000 they could experience the American dream. They asked the same, same thing to people who had an income of about 100000 What would you need? And they responded that they would need 192000 In other words, for Americans, all that we need to be content is double. Then, then we'll have enough. Right? No, because a greedy heart... Always wants more. Nelson Rockefeller was once asked, how much is enough? And his response was this, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Notice the application that Jesus makes of the parable, verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not, in fact, rich toward God don't love foolish treasures why because it's gone wealth has wings because whatever you have if you're greedy it just will never be enough and because greed destroys your soul right? love for wealth will destroy you I want you to turn with me to the book of first timothy chapter six and verse nine. First timothy chapter six verse nine Paul writes, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Wow, that's pretty graphic language, isn't it? He says, those who want to get rich plunge themselves, right? It's the word for drowning. They drown themselves in these foolish, harmful desires. They pierce themselves with many pangs. And again, notice he doesn't say that money is the problem, having it or enjoying it. That's not the problem. The problem is loving it. The problem is when money usurps the place of Jesus Christ and we love it and we long for it and we chase after it. It's not money itself, but it's the longing for money. He says, such is destructive. Uh, I remember several years back, I was on a missions trip. I took a group of college students down to Central America, and we were in this, this very poor neighborhood. And I asked the missionary, I said, I, I'm guessing that in this, this area, one of the things you don't wrestle with in the church is greed, right? And he said, no, no, no. We, our people wrestle with greed. For you, it might be two cars in the garage, but for them, it's two donkeys in the yard, right? It's still greed. It's still discontent with what I have now and a desire, a longing, a demanding for more, worshiping this thing, believing it can give me the best of life. That's greed. That's why Jesus says, literally, he says, don't treasure up. The word is is also used for a repository. Don't treasure it up for yourself because then you're gonna cling to it. and It's gonna destroy you. G.K. Chesterton once said, there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. Well, actually not really because if you accumulate more and more then you're just going to want more and more. Wealth or the love of wealth actually is destructive because it destroys contentment. If I'm greedy and longing for more I can't enjoy what I have today. Because my attention is not fixed upon gratitude and thankfulness. My attention is fixed on what I don't have instead of what I do have. Love of wealth destroys contentment. Love of wealth entices us away from faith. Read again verse 10. It says, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some by longing for it, literally striving after it, chasing after it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You see what he's saying? He's saying love for wealth destroys your love for God. You wander from the faith. Because your love for something other than God is highest in your life Now, you know, we don't talk, in my opinion, enough about money at Grace Bible Church. We should talk more about it because it is a window to the soul. The issue that we're talking about this morning actually is worship, right? It's not actually money, it's worship. It's what do we love? And one of the things that so easily jumps into that place of worship for us is wealth. And when wealth jumps into that place, it actually leads us away from love for God and away from trust in God. Wealth destroys our contentment. Wealth can destroy our faith. Wealth can destroy families. You probably heard the statistic that 50% of marriages end in divorce. You know, and that number can, can be a little bit misleading, depends on how you measure it, but, but lots of marriages end. And you know, the number one reason that marriages end in divorce is Money. It's actually not infidelity, which is what we would initially think. It's, it's money, right? By a factor of four to one, it's money. Money and then an inability to communicate about money, right? And then sex and infidelity and inability to communicate. And I mean, communication is certainly key in there, but money, right? I've seen so many families torn apart by money, Husband's accumulating debt or wife's accumulating debt or both are accumulating debt and they're not telling one another about the debt that they're mutually accumulating and they're creating fear and mistrust in the family. It's tearing the family apart. I've, I've sat with families who are wrestling through this. I've sat with families who are, who are fighting over an inheritance, whether it's land or houses or cars or money, cash, whatever. They're fighting over it. Finally, they reach a, a legal settlement in the court of law and then never speak to one another again. Right? They sacrifice all of that, all that history and all of those relationships in the past, get a dark cloud over them, and all of the history that they could enjoy in the relationships in the future is gone because of stuff. Destroys families, right? It tears them apart. So, where do we begin? Where do we begin? I, I would say that we need to begin, in a sense, with kind of just a fundamental shift of how we look at wealth itself. Psalm chapter 50, David recorded these words of the Lord. He said this, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. God's saying, I don't actually need your wealth because you don't have any wealth. Everything that you have is mine. It's all mine. Your car is not your car, it's it's my car, and I gave it to you as a steward. It's a stewardship. You're not an owner, you're a steward. Your house, your furniture, not yours, mine, right? Your retirement account, your wealth, mine. Your land, mine. Your job, mine. Your relationships, mine. mine. Mine, 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 mine. God says, it's all mine. I made everything, and so ultimately all of it belongs to me. And then I give it to you for a brief period of time to be a good steward, to manage it well. But ultimately, whose is it? God says it's mine. And I think we need to step back and, and begin at this place where we need to have a, a shift that, that all of our possessions, are they're, they're not actually ours. They're just a stewardship from the Lord. Because when we do that, then we see that we have an opportunity with these things. They're just a tool. They're a resource with which we can honor and glorify God and do good for others and enjoy to the glory of God. But not for ourselves ultimately, but for God's glory and for the good of others. We begin to shift our mentality to bless others and to bless God with the resources that belong to God that he's entrusted to us for a brief period of time. Then we begin to invest. So I want to talk for just a moment about investment. How do we invest in the things that really matter? In a sense, how can we be rich at the right time and in the right way? I don't you read with me again in First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. Paul says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world. And I'll pause for just a minute. If you're living in this country, you're rich. <laughs> relative to the rest of the world, you're rich. You might not be rich, as rich as the person sitting next to you, but you're rich relative to the rest of the world. So my point is this. What I'm about to read applies to you. And to me, directly. In this present world, we have far more resources than most people in the world have. So, he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future— so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You've heard the phrase before, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. That's what Paul is saying. Treasure it up for eternity. Invest this earthly wealth in something that is in fact eternal. That's what Jesus meant in Luke chapter 12 when he said, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven. Where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What lasts? Look around you. My people last. So we invest in people. We invest in people coming to know Jesus Christ. So that, as Jesus told in the parable, they welcome us into their eternal abodes. There are people that we have invested our time and our talents and our treasures in so that they could know Jesus. We invest in one another. The body of Christ building up and caring for one another as one has need and another has resources. Why? Because people last. People matter to God. What matters most to God? People. That's what matters to God. And so we can use our treasure to invest in people. Now, where do we begin? Well, let me give you an illustration of a church that did uh, just this. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul describes a church who really got it. And he is using this church as an example for the Corinthian church because the Corinthian church just really didn't get it, right? I mean, if there was a sin, they struggled with it. So he's saying to the Corinthian church, I know that you... You've thought about giving and you want to give, but let me give you an example of a church that really understood how to use their wealth wisely. Chapter 8, 2 Corinthians, verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So what I want you to, to stop and think about for a moment is he's going to describe here in the following verses an illustration of the grace of God in the life of this church. So, how was the grace of God manifested in the life of this church? Verse 2 That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability, and actually beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So, how did God manifest his grace in the life of the Macedonian church? Through poverty. <laughs> well, I think of grace, I go, blessing. I get bumped to first class. That, that, Paul says, no, the grace in their lives is that they had poverty. And they had an opportunity out of their poverty to trust me and to sacrifice and give. And they learned that their joy was not in their wealth, but in me and in others and in giving and serving. Paul says that was actually grace in their lives because it stretched them. It made them whole, complete people, blessed people. That was the grace of God in their lives. Paul says, this is a church who really understood what it meant to invest wisely. Remember, we're we're actually not talking about wealth this morning. We're talking about worship. And we will either worship our wealth or we'll worship with our wealth. And so what we need is we need habits, practices that begin to turn our heart so that our heart doesn't set its affection on things that are worthless and are corruptible and decay or disappear. But instead, we set our heart on the one thing that matters, Jesus, Jesus. what Jesus values, the people around us, and we need habits of our heart to change our heart, to mold us to love what Jesus loves. So I'm going to give you uh, five ideas, right, five practices for what we can do with our wealth that will kind of turn our heart and change our heart, right, transform us. The first is this, start worshiping right now, that is, start worshiping with your wealth right now, and you may say, but I don't have much to give, okay. Just give a little. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to start a habit of the heart. So just give a little. You remember the story uh, that, or the, the um, observation that Jesus made when he was in the temple? Rich people are coming in and they're throwing in all their coins, right? And there's probably this copper receptacle and it's clang, clang, clang. And the disciples are going, wow, that's amazing. Look at the, how generous those rich people are. And then this widow comes in. They've kind of lost track and she puts in two copper coins. And Jesus said, did you see that? And they go, see what? That widow, she, she put in two copper coins, and you know that she gave more than anyone else. Disciples are like, well, he's a carpenter, not an accountant, whatever. <laughs> she said, no, you're forgetting something. God owns everything, and God doesn't need your wealth. God wants your heart. And so when she came in, she gave out of her poverty. She gave sacrificial just because she loves God. They gave out of their abundance to show off. And God says, whatever, I don't really need that. But I want that. So you may not have much at all. I would say, put in a coin or two. Right? Start small. Just begin to, to build a habit. Or, or you may say, you know, but I'm, I'm in debt right now. And I'm working my way out of debt. Okay, we'll give your time. Sacrificially this week or give a possession that you treasure or loan it or share it or do something that begins to start this week, that habit of seeing yourself as a steward of resources who can give them away and share them, right? So start worshiping with your wealth now. Second, worship regularly with your wealth, consistently with your wealth. Again, the Corinthian church, they had, they had purposed to give. They said, we want to give and we want to be generous, but they hadn't started giving. So Paul said, this is what I want you to do. At the first of the week, before you get going on your business, set something aside. And then every week at the first of the week, before you're working on your business, set something else aside. So just get in the habit. Consistently, regularly, just like we sing praises and we spend time in the word, we set money aside because it reminds us that God owns everything, and we put it aside regularly, consistently. It becomes eventually a habit of our heart. Third, learn to worship generously. Learn to worship generously. Read with me in 2 Corinthians again, chapter 8, and verse 3. Paul says, "'For I testify that according to their ability "'and actually beyond their ability, "'they gave of their own accord.'" Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Paul says, This is an amazing church. They didn't have, really, if you looked at the balance sheet, an ability to give, but in, they, instead they said, Well, please let us. And they begged us. In other words, Paul probably said, Well, you probably need to hold on to some of those resources yourself. And they said, No, we're begging you, let us help others. We want to sacrifice. We want to give. We want to be generous. Another poll data for you of Americans. It's been demonstrated that as our wealth increases, we give a smaller percentage of our wealth. As our wealth in absolute terms increases, the percentage that we give goes down. Why? I don't know. We become more greedy or less trusting. There are obvious uh, outliers. There are exceptions to that. There's a a wonderful man who lived years ago, R.G. Letourneau, a very successful businessman. He was an engineer and a devoted Christian. And as he began to grow in his success in business and in his wealth, he gave more and more and more and more of his wealth away. By the time that he died, he was giving away 90% and living on 10%. So that's what you should do. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) How much should you give? I have no idea how much you should give. That's between you and the Lord. That's between you and the Lord. And, and really, I don't think ultimately the amount is what's most critical. It's your heart. How much should you give? I don't know. I do want to share with you one of my favorite quotes, though, from C.S. Lewis. He said this, I do not believe one can settle on how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Because generosity is like a muscle, right? And you need to, you need to tear that muscle up a bit. For it to grow in strength, it needs to be stretched. And maybe there are some of you who are coming from a different church background. You're saying, well, Brian, when are we going to talk about tithing? Okay, well, let's talk about tithing right now. Okay, tithing, 10%. And you're saying to yourself, tithe, teach the tithe. We should give 10%. And I say, yeah, maybe. Tithing was an Old Testament concept. It was under the law. New Testament never mentions tithing. For good or bad. It doesn't say anything about tithing. Tithing for the Jew was that, that first fruits of their wealth. They gave 10% immediately went to the Lord. But you should know that that's not all that they gave. But it wasn't 10% and done. They gave uh, free will offerings. Which were just offerings because they loved God. They would just bring things in because they loved God. They gave to the poor. The, the poor who were unable to work for themselves. They had a social obligation. They always gave without strings attached those who could not work. For those who were poor and could work, they left a strip around the outside of their field so the poor could come in and they could work for themselves and they could, they could gather wheat and feed their own families. In other words, there are all kinds of, of offerings creating this, this culture of generosity, not just 10%. I mean, 10% is easy to calculate. If you want to start, their grade, great. If you want to start at 1%, if you've never given before, maybe that's where you start. What we want is that we want God to teach us to have generous hearts that we love to give and we love to share because we acknowledge God owns everything. Right? And we let God in a sense uh, grow our hearts. So I'm not going to tell you how much you should give. In fact, I don't want us to drift into legalism here because Paul also says this. He says God has given us all things richly to enjoy. So enjoy what God has blessed you with and share what God has blessed you with. And Paul says, don't trust in it and don't be conceited by it, but enjoy it and bless God and bless others with it. How much? That's between you and the Lord. All I can say is this, God wants to stretch you and he wants to stretch me. Fourth, learn to worship with your wealth joyfully. Read with me chapter nine, 2 Corinthians Verse six now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, that is learn to give generously. then he goes on, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver, I and mean, you 've probably heard before that word for cheerful it 's the word from which we get our word hilarious God, God loves people when they 're putting. They're, they're writing that check for that missionary. They're putting money in the plate. They're just laughing and smiling. They're not going, Ugh. here comes the offering plate again. Always reaching into my pocket to take my money. No, as it has been said, you know, don't give like you give to the IRS. Give like you give an engagement ring. Give like you give a toy to a child. Give hilarious, hilariously. Give joyfully. Why? Because God has given us so much. The basis for us giving is what we have, in fact, received. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how did he express grace in this verse? That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. In other words, this is the gospel people, that God took what was most valuable to him, his son, his precious son, and and intimacy and fellowship with him, and he sent him to earth to die on a cross, to bear the weight of the sins of the world, to be separated in some sense I don't understand from the Father. He gave what was most valuable to him so that we could be made rich by Jesus. That's the gospel message, right? Right? We're poor. There's nothing we can offer to God. There's nothing he needs from us. He owns everything. And yet, he made us rich through Jesus Christ. So we turn around and we give just because we've been enriched in Jesus. Not because God needs our wealth, but God wants our hearts. So we give and we learn to give more and more. and We learn to give joyfully and generously. And so I'd say to you this morning, if if you're here and you just wandered in and you you don't come to church very often, you go, man, every time I come to church, they talk about money. I'm sorry. We actually don't talk about it that often. Um, I think we should talk about it more because it reflects what we love. But if you came in and you go, man, they're talking about money. They passed a plate in front of me. Maybe you even put some money in that plate. You know, I'm going to tell you, uh, talk to our deacons afterward and you can get your money back. Really. Because I wouldn't want you to come in and and feel like the point of church is that they take things from me, but that you receive. Because I don't think you really understand the kind of giving that God wants from us until you first receive Jesus. So don't, don't give anything until you first received. Because the gospel is this. God's given more. Far more than we can ever give. In fact, God's not asking us to give back, to earn anything from him. He just wants us first to receive a free gift, absolutely free, no strings attached, which is the most valuable gift. It's the gift of eternal life. It's in Jesus. You can't earn it through your good works or the amount that you give to charity or anything like that because you can't do enough. We're broken, we're sinful, fallen people, every single person in here, and yet God knows all of our brokenness and he still said, you know, I value you and I want to rescue you. I value you so much, in fact, I'm going to take what's most valuable to me and I'm going to give it away. I'm going to give you my son. And so let me just encourage you, if you've walked in here and you've never said yes to Jesus, you've never said, Jesus, I I believe, thank you for giving yourself. Father, thank you for giving Jesus. Just this morning, receive. Just this morning, receive Jesus. And then when Jesus lives inside of you and you've been so enriched by him, your heart will be transformed, and you'll begin to become that kind of person who wants to give generously, joyfully, consistently, because you've been enriched by Jesus. Now, fifth, learn to worship with your wealth wisely. And my giving portfolio, so to speak, looks kind of like this, right? It's it's diversified. It starts with family. Paul says the person who doesn't care for his own family is worse than an unbeliever. It's a bad testimony when others are having to take care of my family, so I need to provide for my family, which doesn't always mean that I just give to extended family members without any condition because that might not be wise, but it does mean that I provide for the needs of my family. I have a priority, a priority obligation to provide for my own. Second, wherever you worship, wherever I worship, That's where we need to be investing. Or wherever you want to see the church planted so others can worship, invest in the local church. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 says this, the one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Now, and I read that, I go, wow, that just sounds so self-serving, but I go, well, there it is. Paul wrote it. So (laughs) we give where, where we receive. Or we give where we want to see others receiving, where we want to see the church planted. Believers in need, the church should take care of the church. Later in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but he says, especially as a priority to those who are of the household of faith. It's a really beautiful thing when the church takes care of the church, and the outside world looks in, they go, man, I, I want to be a part of that. And I will tell you, church, let me, let me praise you, our, our church is so generous to people within the body who are, are suffering. We have a, a fund, a Fund. it's called the People in Need Fund, and it is always amply supplied. When someone comes in from our body and they've lost a job and you know, maybe they can't pay a bill or there's a financial hardship because of an illness or, or, or whatever, somebody gets gets sick and, and they need their lawn mowed. I mean, I've seen our home church groups and our adult Bible fellowships. I've seen this fund be generously stocked. Our church takes care of its own, and that's a beautiful thing. And the outside world looks in, and they go, wow, look how they love one another. Not just in word, but in deed. Okay? We, we are supposed to, to give for one another. Fourth priority is local needs. We're blessed. We're blessed as Americans, and I would argue this church on the whole we have a lot of advantages, we have a lot of of privileges, we have a lot of wealth, and there are people in our community that that don't have what we have. So can we solve all poverty? No. But can we solve some? Yes. So let's give, because there's this really special place in the heart of God for those who can't defend themselves or provide for themselves. The poor, the widow, the destitute, the orphan. The ones who can't provide for themselves, we give. And so we have community partnerships. And I know many of you give your money, but you also give your time. Ministries like SOS, The Bridge, or these different ministries that are doing good. Or our youth impact ministry works with kids who are from disadvantaged families. We try to invest in those lives. Why? Because that's a reflection of the heart of God. And then the nations... Right? The, the image that we have of the body of Christ in Revelation is that there are men and women from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation surrounding the throne. It's this beautiful mosaic of all ethnicities. That's the church. That's what God loves. God's not American. He's not, you know, he's not committed to one nation or one ethnicity. He's not black or white or Hispanic. He loves people. He made people different. He's creative and he wants all of them around his throne. And so I invest in missionaries who are making disciples or planting the church and are doing it effectively because I want to invest my money wisely. And I would say to you the same thing. You know, sit down and evaluate. How are you giving? Where are you giving? And are you doing it well? If you have, uh, if you have kids, sit down with your kids and talk about uh, where you give and how you give. Right? Challenge them to begin to see that what we have is not our own. Right? It's a stewardship from God that we have to give. Right? Those are five application points. Um, let me give you one more. Uh, let's, let's collect another offering. I'm no, just kidding. Um, <clears throat> we're not going to do another offering. All that I want you to do is I want you to take 15 minutes today. Don't wait till tomorrow. If you're single, you do this by yourself. Or you can do it with roommates. If you're married, do it with your spouse. If you have kids, do it with your spouse and your kids. And sit down and talk about where your heart is toward what you own. Do you see it as your, your own or do you see it as stewardship? And how do you give? And where do you give? And is God calling you maybe to give more? Is God calling you to start giving? I want you to do that. Do it today before your week starts. Right? And you get busy on your own stuff. Just 15 minutes, sit down and evaluate. Am I generous? Am I joyful? Am I being stretched? Am I wise in the use of the resources God has given me? I want to leave you with one verse. It's from the book of Philippians. Remember, Philippians is essentially Paul's uh, thank you letter. Paul's the missionary, and he has a supporting church, the Philippian church. And he's writing them this thank you letter for supporting him and getting the gospel out to the nations. And he says this. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am amply supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, and notice how he describes it, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. It is, it's an act of worship. It's an act of worship. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bend our hearts and mold our hearts and make us into people who just love to give because that's who you are. You're a God who gives and gives and gives beyond what anyone could ever give back to you. And I pray, Father, that we would become such generous people because we have received richly in Jesus Christ, It's in his name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week being generous. We'll see you next week.